Hey, this is Tolly Wilkins of Captivate Church, and we're so glad you've joined us on our podcast today. This is one way that we can take our message from Baltimore all across the world. We pray that today encourages you, inspires you to become the man or woman that God's designed you to be. Um, essentially, what we're going to do is this. We're going to dive into the scriptures, and I'm, I could have titled this whole series um, A Sermon for Personality Type 1, or A Sermon for Personality Type 2. Um, but uh, so we're wrapping this virtue and vice series all around the idea of the, the vices that come up against us. And the scripture talks about um, the, the weight and the sin that we'll, we'll see in a minute that so easily entangle us. And, um, and, and, and so for some of us, there are some vices that jump off the page more than others. Um, our personality types are really kind of a, a, a flesh response to the, the spirit of God that is in us, and the flesh and the spirit are at war with each other. And so a lot of what makes us us is the fact that our flesh is trying to get through in this world, and our flesh adapts what's called a personality to be able to do that. Um, when you look at how personalities and what personalities are developed, many times it comes from a core wound. When you look at who you were as a child and how you cope to find joy, um, then you will find that there was a core wound there that set you in a direction. In your family, if you spoke up, you got chided. So maybe you became a more peaceful, quiet person. In your family, if you were super, super quiet, you got run over. So maybe you became a more aggressive person and so forth and so on. For each of us, um, we develop a personality that fits us, that we feel like, man, this is the blanket I can, I can have. This can be the thing that keeps me comfortable in this world ahead. And as a result, that's, that's a, a, a kind of a flesh response to trying to find peace and joy um, outside of um, the Spirit of God. And so what we're wanting to do is we're going to take time and say, you know what? The Scripture speaks to all of these vices. The Scripture speaks to all of us um, if we would look into it. And so instead of kind of just uh, maybe uh, hoping that eventually it gets there, we're going to look at the common uh, traits of the personality and be able to say, you know what? Where does the Scripture speak clearly? And the Scripture absolutely does. We started last week with the fruit of the Spirit. And um, the, the reason why is I wanted you to see, one, you can be without grace if um, you're sinning, but you can also be without grace if you're trying to do uh, too much religion on your own. And so that leaves you outside of the realms of grace. But also, the fruit of the Spirit actually speak directly to the vices that our personalities tend to take hold. And uh, so we're using in this uh, series, we could use a lot of different tools but we're using what's called the Enneagram. And the reason why I'm using that is that it's um, a, a moving target in, in the sense of the Enneagram is designed with the idea that you're not always one personality. Like you, you are a complex creature and you have a core uh, basis from which you operate, but then you move at different times. And the Enneagram helps to try to explain that. Also, the Enneagram doesn't presume that you're good at, at the center of your heart. The Enneagram actually lines up most with Christianity out of all these personalities because they're not just saying, hey, this is your personality and you're stuck there. This is your personality and you're good. Be happy with it. They're saying this is your personality and you have virtues and you have vices if you rely on that personality. And so the reason that we're, I'm using that as kind of a, a little bit of a framework to, to, to teach the scriptures in light of our vices is because the fruit of the Spirit actually is the answer to all of these vices. Living under the presence of God, living under the Spirit, living according to His Word, that is the
the, at the, the key, that is the takeaway that allows us to say, you know what, I'm not going to live according to the flesh my whole life. My flesh, no matter how good I feel, my flesh, no matter how bad I feel, my flesh isn't the answer. And our personality types, when we rely on our personality types to get us through life, it's relying on the flesh instead of the spirit. And so that's kind of the, the basis or the framework um, that uh, we're using as we dig in. Uh, I want to start with, by reading you a quote from uh, Calvin, John Calvin. He has a, a, a well-known, essentially, um, a theological overlay to the world where he helps to try to in, explain things. It's called the Institutes of the Christian Religion. And here's what he says in the opening. He says, Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts. Everybody say two parts. Our wisdom, as far as it can be deemed true and solid, is two parts. The knowledge of God and of ourselves. The knowledge of God and of ourselves. And then there's a long explanation in that opening chapter, and then he ends that section with this. Every person, therefore, on coming to the knowledge of himself, is not only urged to seek God, but is also led as by the hand to find him. Every person, therefore, on coming to the knowledge, the more you know about yourself, it's not only an urge to seek God, but it's being led by the hand to find him. The more that I understand myself and how I tick, the more I'm going to see everything the Scripture makes clear and plain to be. The more that I understand my areas of brokenness, it's going to make me run to the Scriptures and cling to the God of the Scriptures to be able to find healing and hope. There's no such thing, Calvin would argue, as a self-help book. Essentially, you become aware of yourself. You become aware of the skin that you're in so that once you become aware, it will drive you. It will push you to the scriptures for answers. It will push you to the Lord to find hope and meaning and purpose. Because the more you delve deep into your own soul, the more you delve deep into what makes you you, the more you will cry out for a God to rescue. Most of the people that are, that are the most critical tend to be the people that are least self-aware. And when I meet, meet older Christians, people that have been in the faith a long time, and, and they are uh, curmudgeons, they are people that are angry, when I meet those folks, usually I'm meeting someone who understood the letter of the law or understood the letter of the scriptures, but don't understand at all how it operates, and they're not very self-aware. They genuinely believe because they've racked up so much knowledge that they're distant from the, the, the frailty and the brokenness that this world has to offer us. They, they believe they're distant from all of the hang-ups that come along. And so as a result, their life begins to exude judgment and, and anger more than joy and love and peace and gentleness and meekness and all of these things. And so for us, we look at the personality not because the personality has the answers. We look at the personality because the personality will re reveal our, our flesh and our flaws. And then we go to God and say, God, how can you heal that? Now, I want to tell you a couple of things that I want you to keep in mind for this series. First, Enneagram can be helpful as a discipleship tool. It can be helpful. It's not uh, a, 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 a thing that's, that's in the scriptures and here's the Enneagram and all of that, but it can be helpful as a discipleship tool if you use it appropriately. Personality traits are personality tools, as I said. They, they uh, don't have this virtue and vice component but the Enneagram does. And also, the Enneagram allows you to get to a place called true self, 
And in Christ, that's exactly what we would call living according to the fruit of the Spirit. So if you use it um, with the, the Scriptures over top and, and looking at the Scriptures first, you'll be able to see some truths in it. I have this um, uh, belief that I've, I've learned in, in college and I've come to live by, but um, all truth, all capital T truth, is God's truth. All truth is God's truth. If, if it's true, if it's accurate, God put it there. Um, he's not a God of lies. He's a God of order, not of disorder. And if there is truth in this world, whether it be physics or whether it be personality, whether it be um, relationships, if it's true, God instituted it. And so as a consequence, we look through the lens of the scriptures and we can see the rest of the world around us. Enneagram is not the Bible, number two, I want you to understand. Um, there is nothing that I'm going to say will ever advocate for uh, using any kind of tool outside of the scriptures in order to be able to uh, navigate and go through life. All truth is God's truth, but nothing replaces the scripture for your spiritual formation. Scripture can inform the Enneagram, but the Enneagram does not inform scripture. Thirdly, Enneagram describes motivation. It does not predict action. Enneagram describes motivations, but it does not predict action. There are, you're going to find nine personality types that the Enneagram kind of sets up as, as its uh, model. And in those um, nine, all of them could end up having a certain action. So you have a neighbor who wakes up at 7 a.m. and begins mowing their lawn. You're not able to say exactly which personality type. Now, you might want to guess. You might have a type that drives you crazy, and you go, it would only be that type of person that would do that. Uh, but you don't know. We can walk around, and, and uh, over time, as you understand the different personality types more, I, I might be able to tell you, you know what? This person does it because... They're, they're extremely organized and meticulous, and they have a long schedule that day. And so they're getting out at 7 a.m. to do that. This person over here, they, they really, they like to get back at their neighbor who was partying all night. So they got up, and they started mowing their lawn at 7 a.m. Uh, to, to drive their neighbors crazy. And you might walk through and find out why it is that they are this way. This person's such a helper. It's not even their lawn that they're mowing. They're mowing the lawn for somebody else, and you're mad at them. It's not even their lawn. And so there's lots of personality. The personality just simply says what the motivation is. You can't judge the people's um, behaviors and assume anything about their personality. All right, I want to show you this graph. And this graph walks through um, what uh, I went and, and was trained um, professionally in the integrative Enneagram. And so um, that's the one that I, I tend to use. But essentially at the top there, eight, nine, and one, I was going to start with eight. Um, and if I was doing a, a, a series just on that, I would have. Um, but it's easier for you guys to see it work its way out just one through nine. And then after you understand it all, you'll get there. So eight, nine, and one um, is what is called the gut triad. And it's basically three personality types that respond most to the, the, the body. You, you feel the world right in here. And sometimes you're, you're intuitive and you can't explain it, but kind of the world hits you uh, right in the chest. Two, three, and four are the, the feeling or the heart center. Um, the, these are people that, that um, they process the world through primarily through emotion. And then five, six, seven, these are what's called the head triad or the head types. They process the world primarily through um, uh, intellect or the mind. And as we walk through each one, you're going to see how they handle it differently. Essentially, the, the center, so six, nine, and three, each of those, they're kind of uh, handling it in an, in an opposite 
uh, way of their particular triad. And then on the left and the right of each of those, you have one that's all in and you have one that's all out. And so with that understanding, there's uh, nine personality types. I want to dive in um, and, and tell you this. First, if Jesus were to take this Enneagram uh, survey, he would score 100 on everything that's healthy, and he would score zero on everything that's unhealthy. Unfortunately, we're not Jesus. Uh, we tend to score uh, all over the map, and we tend to be drawn um, by one versus another. Today would be a sermon for uh, type one. I want to tell you a little bit about type one. Um, type one would be labeled as the strict perfectionist. Um, this would be the person in your life uh, that, that they are meticulous. They, want, they have an order to the way things should work. And they fully believe that if you're outside of that order, you are bad. You are wrong. It's not a matter of difference. It's a matter of wrong and right. It's a matter of good and bad. And in all cases, uh, you don't have much gray. Like you will land um, to a one. You will land on either side of this equation. And so you better uh, hope and pray that you happen to land uh, right where they do, <laughs> because then they'll, they'll be happy with you. Um, but if you land outside of that, um, this is the type that's kind of most stringent about um, don't you dare violate a, a rule, a boundary, um, a principle. At rest, the, the, the fruit of the Spirit at rest that they exude, exude most, the Scripture tells us this is the fruit of the Spirit. Do you know the fruit of the Spirit that they most exude? Self-control. Why? Because they go, you know what? I, I don't want to be bad. I don't want to be wrong. And so most of, of the time, and I'm not saying all the time, but most of the time when you bump into a type 1 personality, uh, the, and it's not type A, it's type 1, when you bump into that personality, most of the time these aren't the people that have all the problems doing all the sins. Um, most of the time these are people who have uh, pretty um, decent boundaries, um, except for driving in some cases. In some cases they'll break the rules driving. Uh, vice. Their, their vice, the thing that they have to battle constantly is anger. Um, anger. I'm going to explain more about that, but they're in the anger triad. The, the, the gut, 8, 9, 1, they deal with anger, but they deal with it in different ways. So the 8, for instance, has no problem just living um, anger right at the surface. No problem. And they don't believe the world should have a problem either. They're just being honest. Um, the 9 pushes back completely. We've got a, a lot of 9s in our church, and the 9s kind of push back from the whole anger thing, and they basically, they're everybody's friend. And uh, they're peaceful people and they're good people, but they have that anger down there. And they deal with anger and let it come out in a different way. And then the ones, um, the ones, they do something interesting with anger. Uh, what what they, they do with anger is what's called reaction formation. And what it means is because they have anger bubbling, they believe anger to be a bad thing. Like you can't, don't be angry, don't, don't let it show. And so what happens is they, they form on the outside. They're the types of people that'll smile and be like, oh, that was sweet. But in their heart, they're like, you're the dumbest rock I've ever came across. And so uh, type 1 personalities, they, that's, that's kind of how they go about it. And so the stretch fruit for them, so the fruit of the Spirit is for all of us. We need all of it. And if we'll just let the Spirit of God lead us, all of us will live out in an ideal world the fruit of the Spirit. We'll get out of the way. The Holy Spirit leads. Tali exudes all the fruit, right? But there are some parts of the Spirit of God that are easier for me than others. And so for the type one, the easier is, hey, self-control. No problem there. I'm pretty, pretty good on the rule stuff. But when it comes down to, um, to, to, to love, I have a hard time loving myself. And as a result, I have a hard time loving the world. Because inside, you'll discover 
that, that a, a type one personality, that person, when, what they're dealing with is they're dealing with this, this inner critic that's constantly telling them, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, you're not good enough, you're not good enough, you're not good enough. And all day they see the world as a, a boardroom. They have a giant boardroom in their mind that is constantly ridiculing them inside. And so they, when they come out and they reaction formation and they interact with you, when a, when a type one begins to interact, they might say, hey, get your act together but they're genuinely doing that out of love. They're not trying to be mean to you. They're not trying to tear you up. They're not trying to tear you down. In fact, they feel like maybe you just don't see where you're messing up. And so as a consequence, uh, type ones can be misunderstood because we look at that and go, man, get off my back. You're too, you're too hard on me. So love is a stretch fruit for them because they, they have to learn to love themselves in spite of their brokenness. We live in a fallen world, and whether they want to admit it or not, they are a part of that brokenness in this world. And so love allows them to be able to, to look like Jesus did. Remember when Jesus saw the crowds, he had what? Compassion. When, when Jesus is up on the, the cross and, and, and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's love. It's this ability to see past the brokenness to get to love. A couple of images for you should explain a little bit more. They live with this idea that you're not good enough. But type one's primary focus of attention, seeing error to reform and improve. Down at the bottom, your Enneagramcoach.com. That's a great place if you get excited about this stuff and you want to learn more. Um, it's a Christian-based uh, Enneagram approach. And um, the lady who does it does a great job, uh, Beth McCord. And uh, so anyhow, so seeing error to reform and improve the ones always trying to do it. My hidden struggle as a type one, extreme and, and on, uh, ongoing berating from an inner critic, as I just explained, the weight and resentment of being the only responsible adult around sometimes. The type one is like your nanny. Like they're, they're, they're always making sure everybody is, is in order and got their life together. Um, attempt to maintain an outer attitude of self-control. This is the reaction formation. They have a fear of being bad, corrupt, evil, defective, um, they don't want to be inappropriate. They don't want to be um, considered to be corruptible. Um, the problem, uh, the, their, their problem with faith is think only, the only wrong is sin, um, but they miss grace because of the works of the flesh. They can't receive discipline because it admits failure. If they, if they have to say, yeah, I was wrong, that means the inner critic gets to light up and say, see, look how messed up you are. And so it's difficult to admit a failure or wrongness. Um, if they're in sin, it's hard to move forward. Once they admit that, it's difficult for a one to move forward after they've been forgiven because the inner critic inside just rips them to shreds. And so it's difficult sometimes for the one to be able to uh, pick themselves up and keep moving once they acknowledge their sin. So what is the sermon to the, the one in light of all of this? And by the way, you have some one in you. We have uh, all this personality. We're made in the, the image of God. And, uh, and as a result, our, our, the, the stuff about us that didn't require Christ to go to the cross um, can be seen as a gift, that, that there's a lot of good in there, the part that's not corrupted in you. Um, and there's a lot about you that needs to be redeemed. Um, but the flesh in and of itself, whether it exhibits goodness or whether it exhibits sin, the flesh in and of itself um, needs salvation, all of it. But Hebrews 12, 1 through 11 speaks through this. Hebrews 11 comes off of what a lot of people would call the 
hall of faith. And what you see is you see these great people of great faith in Hebrews 11. And they get to the edge and the ledge, most of them, but they don't get to see the fruition of their faith. They're commended for living by faith. And so we come off of this amazing chapter of Hebrews chapter 11 of people that were seeking after the Lord. And in some cases, we're not even worthy, it says, to... to, to um, uh, even deal with their sandals. We're not even worthy to, to be at their feet. Like that's how great they are lifted up in the scriptures. And then we get to Hebrews 12. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight. Can you say weight? Wait, I want you to see this. Lay aside every weight and sin. Can you say and sin? And sin. I need you to see that difference. Because the sermon to the one is that, you know what? It's not simply that you're, uh, you're not sinning, you're better so that for your good. You may be weighed down by some weights. There may be some other things that are holding you back that have nothing to necessarily do with a right and wrong, black and white sin issue. But all of us, we have to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter. Do you see that word? Of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And, you have, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Obviously, the sermon is for all of us. But to the one, I hope you can see, man, what, what promises are there for the strict perfectionist? Therefore, since we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. If you're jotting notes, you might want to write this down. Sin is not the only weight that slows us down. Sin itself is not the only weight that slows us down. Sometimes we're slowed down by the things that we deem good, but they're distractions. Sometimes distractions are sinful. Sometimes they're just extra that get in your way. The personality one has a tendency to become distracted by that which is not perfect in their world around them. Ones have a tendency to see not only their own flaws, but also the flaws of others. In their desire to help everyone be better, they can come across, they can come across as judgmental and hurtful when they're trying to tell other people how to do right. And so the, the, the weight, we all have different weights. We all have a race laid out before us. But, but for us, we have to understand that it's not just sin itself that can cause us to go off track. There's an expression that, that the, the good is the enemy of the great. The idea that... that that simply because you're doing good things doesn't mean you're doing the best things. And so for our lives, for some of us in this passage, it might jump out that, you know what, I need to, to get rid of the sin in my life. And yes, it's absolutely true. For, for many of us, that would be the main focus. But man, don't look at that and say, oh, it's just only sin things that slow me down. No, no, no. It could be some good things. You could be slowed down, however, if you're 
If your flesh is always being critical of everyone around you, that can actually be the headwind to your ability to go ahead and live out your race. Because you're constantly being distracted by seeing all the flaws in everyone. And I've got news for you, church. We live in a fallen world. And if you don't see the sin around you, if you don't see the brokenness, you've got to be blind. But if all you see is the brokenness, and if all you see is everybody else's faults, then it doesn't leave very much room for love. Because what happens is you start to see all of the world in terms of their, their good and their bad, their right and their wrong. And as a result, you're framing constantly. And you're constantly labeling people. And you're constantly holding people back. And, and, and you're not projecting what Jesus did for the people that were broken, which was love. And so we've got to be able to say, yes, that is a wrong thing. Yes, that is sin. No, I do not agree with it. However, I'm going to lead with love. And then in the, as the passage goes on, see not only sin, wait, it slows us down, but we get to the next part. It says, let us run with endurance the race that is what? Set before us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You have a calling on your life and your calling is to run your race. You're not running everybody else's race. You've got a call on your life and you've got a, a plan and God has designed you for a purpose. He's designed you for a, a, a way. The scripture says he designed good works in advance for you to do when you live this life. And so you have a calling on your life. You have a, a path. You have a plan. You have a lane to stay in. And you cannot be um, caught up in everybody else's drama. There's a scripture you might have, I mean, a scripture, not a chance. There is a, uh, a meme that went around a few years back. Scripture, meme, no, different church. So that was mean. Check out this, uh, Michael Phelps. You guys remember this? Winners focus on winning, losers focus on winners. Do you see the guy in the next lane over where his attention is? You see where Phelps' eyes are? You see, you and I, we can have the weight of the world weigh us down and we don't end up completing our race. Because we're so focused on making sure everybody else is doing what we want that really it becomes prideful. And we actually start to feed the ego because we start to say, well, gee, I'm better than them. I'm better than they are. Not as bad as that person. And we begin walking around believing it's our role to constantly grade everyone. And that can weigh you down. One, you're going to download far more uh, pain and drama and sin than is meant for you. And two, you're going to believe you're some sort of hero or heroine who's responsible for everybody's brokenness. And neither are the truth. You're to lead with love. Love means that you point people to Christ. Love means that when you have an opportunity to speak into it, you sure do. You do speak into it. However, love also means that, that Jesus didn't spend his earthly ministry running around rebuking every single human that he came in contact with. He just didn't. What Jesus did was he pointed to the kingdom of God. What Jesus did was he pointed to the fact that there is a heaven and a hell, and we, we, we need to be aware of that, and we need to, to follow the Lord. But what he didn't do was to spend his time looking at every person's eyeballs and, and giving them the riot act. The Pharisees and Sadducees did that plenty enough. Comparison leads to nowhere good, usually jealousy or pride. Pride. 
when we're constantly comparing, constantly critiquing, you're either going to get jealous of the position that you're not in or you're going to get prideful about the position that they're not in. When we unleash the inner voice of the inner critic on others, we can be distracted in our own race. And in our desire for others to be good, it morphs into a desire for us to be right. So pride creeps in. Anger builds up. Resentment rages. So what's the weight? The weight is you're looking over at the next lane, believing that we have more to contribute to their journey than we actually do. You've got to learn to trust God in other people's lives. It's not always going to be right for you to speak up and jump in. So instead of looking into other lanes, where do we look? What does it say, verse 2? Looking to who? Jesus. Instead of looking into the lanes and getting distracted and trying to allow my pride to build up about what they are not and what I am, we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. The word is finisher, completion, brings to completion of our faith, whom for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. We are called to look to Jesus, who's the only perfecter. Jesus is the one that finishes the job. Jesus is the one that can help people cross the finish line. Jesus is the one that saves their souls. Jesus is the one that makes them new. Jesus is the one that will lead us and guide us. We look to Jesus. We don't look to the world and say, let me pick you apart. Let me pick you apart. Let me pick you apart. No, no, no. That can become a weight to us, especially if you know that you're prone to that. Your personality type um, picks people apart emotionally and, and, and good and bad and judgment. If you are consumed by that, you're going to find that that becomes the weight that slows you down. But if you'll look to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm going to actually pray for that person. I'm going to take this person to you. And Lord, I know this person is in sin and brokenness. And I know they don't agree or they don't believe. But I'm going to battle in, in, in heaven for them. I'm going to genuinely take my desire for, for people to become better and put it somewhere where it's useful. I'm going to look to Jesus. Jesus is the author and perfecter, the founder and perfecter of our faith. He's the foundation of your faith. He's the one who calls us to holiness. He's the one that can move the heart of man. You can logically argue somebody, but Jesus can do it in an instant. Instead of trying to control or coerce others, we look to Jesus to have his will and his way on earth. This is the prayer for us. Your will on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we pray. And so when doing that, seeing the brokenness around you, it's not that you ignore it or put blinders on, but what you do is you realize, gee, of course, there's sin. I know that. And so as a result, instead of getting bogged down and weighed down by the weight of all of that, I'm going to take that to the Lord. I'm going to pursue Jesus. I'm going to pray de um, desperate prayers for people's lives. And I'm going to lead with love. Because at the end of the day, it's his kindness. It's his mercy that draws us to repentance. And so if I want people to, to come to faith and to do right and good, I need to be keeping my eyes not on the people and their problems, but on the perfect one, Jesus. I'm not going to get bogged down. And you won't get bogged down if you're looking to Jesus. Look to Jesus and see how he handled himself in the face of all sin. It says, despising the shame, he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In the spirit, we love like Jesus because we love from his victory. We're not overwhelmed by the weight of the imperfection around us. We're overwhelmed by the finished work of Christ on the cross. 
You can worship worry. You can worship fear. You can worship anxiety. You can worship sin and brokenness. You can spend all your time dedicating all of your mouth's glory to all of that. Or you can say, Lord, I understand that I'm in a sinful and fallen world. My job is to be a witness to the testimony of your goodness. And by the way, I don't worship a God that's fighting a battle. I worship a God that's already won the battle. Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand. And so as a result, I look to him. I look to the one that has victory over all of this, sin, hell, death, and the grave. I look to him and I celebrate him. And the words that come out of my mouth, I spend a lot more time celebrating over him who's seated at the Father's right hand and will come back, redeem his kids, take us home. I celebrate and worship him. So many of us, we spend our times giving too much credit to the enemy's work around us instead of giving more credit to the finished work of Christ within us. And so you and I, we can all learn, not just the ones, we can all learn to look to Jesus and realize that we're loving because he's already got the victory. And his example for us was to love in spite of it. To the one, but to all of us who might be critical from time to time, please understand, the Savior that you and I worship, every person he locked eyes with was beneath him. Every single human being, he was looking at a reason that he had to go to the cross. But he found it within him to treat the worst sinners with love and dignity and respect and honor. He healed people that didn't, quote-unquote, deserve it. Every single person that he interacted with in his earthly ministry was a fallen, frail, broken sinner. And so what happens is we forget that sometimes, and we categorize the people that Jesus was nice to as if they were better people than others. And the reality is, no, the only people Jesus really let them have it was the religious people that were trying to use religion to control the others around them who actually understood their frailty and humility. They actually understood their brokenness. You look at the, 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 the widow's might, like that, that's someone just going and understanding, I, I don't have much, but I'm not going to use my lack as a reason to not worship. But then you look at the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and how they um, walked around in clothing and that they demanded resources and they had this posture about them. We tend to look with those eyes, but you got to remember, the Lord we worship, everybody. Everybody he interacted with was a sinner in need of grace. So my friend, why in the world would you be above Jesus? Why do you think you're above Jesus? That somehow... You, you, you have a right to treat people different. You have a right to judge. You have a right to put down. Why? We don't. What we can do is be a witness to that Jesus. And how is the world going to know, the Scripture says, that we are in Christ by our love? And so you and I, we've got to love well. We've got to love others, the Scripture says, the way that we love ourselves. And so what is that mean? It means that we must love ourselves. 
So dear type one, the concluding passage, it's for all of us, of course, but for you, look what it says. Considered him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you might not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? You see, when you're, when you're battling the sin that's in you, and especially if you're more judgmental to yourself and you won't give yourself the forgiveness that Christ gave you at the cross, in those moments, the, the Scripture says, have you not forget, forgotten? Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as what? Sons. Daughters. Child of God. And so you and I, we can look and, and say, you know what? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. So that's one, right? Do not regard lightly. I can get that. If I'm, if I'm a type one, I get that. If I'm another type, maybe, maybe it's, it's harder. Nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord, what? Disciplines the one he loves. Type ones, you understand discipline. You understand not living up. You understand falling short. You get all of that. It's intrinsic in you. It's just part of your personality makeup. I got it, I got it, I got it. But what you don't get, if you've confessed Christ as Savior, if, if you've laid down the flesh and picked up Jesus for your salvation, you're not works-based, you're grace-based. Now, if you have done that, if you're in the family of God, then it's okay for you to also understand that you're a child of God. And so on one hand, all you can feel is disapproval and disappointment and disillusion and being punished. But he says, you know what? When God is refining you, when God is doing the discipline, he does that for his children. He does that for his children. For the Lord disciplines those he loves and he chastises every son whom he receives. It's not in my notes up here, but I want to read this because I don't want you to miss it. I feel like maybe there's somebody in this room that, that really needs to just read, read on down. And... Verse 7 goes on and it says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons or daughters. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated then you're illegitimate children, and you're not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we what? Respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us, the fathers, our fathers, for they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he, God, disciplines us for our what? Our good. That we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight the paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So it is that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, 
that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many have become defiled. You see the point for you, especially type 1, as you read this scripture? It jumps out at you. You're a child of God. If you've trusted Christ as Savior, that is who you are. And yes, there'll be times when you're not right. Yes, there'll be times when you're not perfect. Yes, there'll be times when you miss the mark. Yes, there will be times you need to confess your sin. But don't let the flesh punish you to the point to where you can't enjoy being his child. And don't let the weight of looking at everyone else's problems slow you down from running your own race. But rather understand that you have the ability, somewhat uh, mysteriously so more than the rest of us, to see brokenness and imperfection. But you can run and look to the author and perfecter of your faith. And you can learn to lead with love. The fruit of the Spirit is to lead with love. You've got self-control down. But man, lean into love. All of us in this series, so long as you come, as long as you dive in, all of us are going to learn a lot about ourselves, about our friends, about one another, about the goodness of God in all of this. And my prayer is that by the end of this, in a couple of months, you'll be better equipped to love people around you as you love yourself, as you understand that you're broken and so is that person. And when you understand that, you start to give people more grace. You start to give people love. You start to exude God's mercy over them because you are at peace with the fact that you're broken too. And as you leave today, you're going to lock eyes with a lot of people. And here's what I want you to know about them. All of them are sinners. All of them can be sons and daughters of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And all of them, regardless of where they are on their journey, they deserve you to lead with love because that's what your Savior Jesus did. Let's pray.